Hey, people, it's Jose Nino again, bringing you another thought-provoking episode of El Nino Speaks. Today, Neboja Mouch is joining us again to provide some necessary geopolitical enlightenment, along with some interesting takes on American domestic politics. But before we get started, Neboja, please tell potential new listeners about yourself. Hi, so I'm a... Serbian-American, uh, lived here for over 25 years, um, ended up uh, straying into journalism and political commentary and uh, geopolitical analysis. And I've been, uh, I've, I've had a weekly column with antiwar.com for years, and I've uh, worked with RT after that, and have uh, perforce been observing this unpleasantness over the past year uh, from a uh, not quite an insider perspective, but with a lot of echoes to my experience uh, during the Balkans Wars for the 1990s, specifically the Bosnian War, which I lived through. All right. So the one-year anniversary of Russia's military incursion into Ukraine has already passed. What are your thoughts thus far about what's going on in Ukraine? Well, Ukraine itself is, I think, just one of the fronts in the conflict, which is far broader in scope. I think a lot of people lose sight of that. They look at just what's happening in Ukraine, and they look at the maps and the names of towns and villages and comb the telegram channels and Twitter posts for destroyed vehicles and get lost in the minutia. But what they don't realize is that by the admission of, of Western leaders, this is a proxy war of the the West with Russia. And by the public statements of the Russians, this is a war between Russia and the West. But they just don't call it a war because that would have certain legal ramifications. And from the Russian perspective, the, the more important fronts are really the economic and cultural, whereas the demilitarization of Ukraine from their perspective, is proceeding as planned, if a bit more slowly than they anticipated. Interesting. So one thing I've noticed is that it looks like the city of Bakhmut appears to have fallen or it's about to fall to Russian forces. But <laughs> you obviously hear, though, the Westoid media talk about how now the city is all of a sudden strategically unimportant despite all this hype before that it was like a very important city and the Zelensky regime has sent copious amounts of military assets there to, to shore it up. This is in Eastern Ukraine, by the way, for listeners that are not um, aware of what's taking place. However, upon careful analysis of the situation on the ground, things do appear to be going in Russia's favor there. In what ways do you believe that the fall of Bakhmut is significant? Well, Bakhmut, or as the Russians and the Donetsk locals call it, Artyomovsk, is actually a major railway junction, road junction. Think like the importance of Gettysburg in the whole uh, campaign of the summer of 1863. I mean, it's, it's literally a crucial geographical location. And there's plenty of high ground nearby. There's not a really good defensive line for the Ukrainians between there and Slavyansk, which is where this whole thing started back in 2014. And after that, there's really not a good defensive line for them until the Dnieper River. So, of course, it's a big deal. It's a huge deal. None other than Zelensky himself was saying just a month ago that, you know, Bakhmut will never fall. It is a it is an extremely strategic city. And now you have, you know, the very same people who glorify him and think he's the, you know, return of Winston Churchill or something, dismissing it as, you know, oh, it's not really that strategically significant. There's actually somebody had made a little meme cope chart of, that starts with, you know, nothing's <laughs> going on and ends with it was never strategically significant to begin with. <laughs> is that like the clown type meme or is that something else? It's got like six or seven bars. It looks like one of those idiotic <laughs> Homeland Security like color charts from the early 2000s. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, it, it would be hilarious if it weren't for the fact that a lot of people are dying. But yes. Yeah. Yeah. It does show like how detached from reality these so-called geopolitical experts are, man. This is 
absolutely farcical and it's testament to how degraded international relations institutions have transformed in the past like five decades or so. It's a joke. Like I've always said that if you think that you can turn the entire planet into like some facsimile of like the US is like dysfunctional liberal democracy that is such a dumb take that it is something that will easily land you a PhD type of candidacy in Harvard or whatever institutions like churning out all these self-professed experts. Well, absolutely. I mean, not to name any names, but there's a certain Stanford professor who used to be an ambassador to Russia. And <laughs> his takes are so brutally stupid that it's one of those in a normal society, that kind of person ought to be ashamed to show his face outside. But here he is, and he's not the only one. I mean, there's plenty of people who are, I mean, in his case, he's, he's, he's supposed to be a respectable academic. But there's other people, again, not to name any names, but there's people who just absolutely be themselves on social media every day for clout, for, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess they're trying to build themselves up as, as these, you know, experts, connoisseurs, authorities on the subject. And they're just, the problem with that is that they're so often so wrong, so catastrophically that nobody in their right mind would really, should listen to them. And yet they keep going because it's one of those that's the eternal present and nobody ever calls you out. And if somebody does call you out, they're like, oh, you're a Russian propagandist, block, you know, sick the NAFO troll army on you or something like that. It's, it's, it's nonsense. Yeah, those people are the, uh, the equivalent of geopolitical astrologists. And in a rational society, they would be reduced to pauper status and would have like tomatoes like thrown at them. Because these people are like are really like total parasites that offer no value, and they worst case they they just justify like wholesale destruction of like multiple types of societies. Man, pretty bad stuff. Absolutely. Well, a good friend of mine once coined a term for uh, basically journalists carrying the water uh, of governments, and she called them prostitutes. I think this is worse. The this type of punditry. I mean. There's this class of pundits in the West specifically that is essentially, they, they don't believe anything. Their job is to rationalize an argument on behalf of power that they serve. And they will one day say one thing and the next day when the science or the message or the ideology changes, they will say something completely opposite and they will pretend and have never said the first thing to begin with. I've seen this with COVID. I've seen this with the, this particular conflict. I've seen it with three or four other things enough to, to conclude that there is a pattern at work. And you know, this is why I don't like to be called a pundit because yes, I, I express my opinions, but Nobody's paying me to tell them what they want to hear. Everything that I post on social media are my own thoughts, the way I see the situation based on, you know, the inputs that I have, the experiences that I've had. And every time, even though this goes against every single propaganda persuasion technique adopted in the West, I say, look, I'm triple questioning myself here because I don't want to impose a pattern where there isn't one. But this looks to me like this thing that I, that I then explain. And more often than not, that particular analysis turns out to be true because I've spotted the pattern correctly. And when I'm wrong, and let's be frank, I've been wrong more than a few times. I mean, I was convinced up until February 24th, 2022, that there was not going to be an invasion or special military operation or whatever because partly because Biden and the CIA were barking very loudly about it, and they've been so reliably wrong about everything so far, and the, the humiliation of Afghanistan was fresh in everybody's mind, or should have been, that allowed that to cloud my judgment and basically dismiss their claims out of hand. And afterwards, it turned out that there was probably a back channel by which Moscow warned them, you know, if you reject our security proposals, this is what's going to happen. And they basically maliciously reinterpreted that as, you know, Russia's going to invade because it's evil. And it's one of those, 
the boy who cried wolf, nobody believed him when an actual wolf showed up situations. Yeah, and, he, and almost farcically too, even though the CIA got that right, they got the prediction of Kiev falling like in five days wrong. And then this whole insurgency strategy, they were going to like kick off. It's just like this like institution is just so, it is so bureaucratically incompetent that it just cannot be trusted, even when it, it gets like things marginally right or occasionally right. This leads to another point because of how this war is like taken longer than a lot of people expected. And I've seen some people who are quote unquote black pilled with Russia's performance thus far. On top of that, you do see the US extracting some geopolitical and geoeconomic benefits by basically making nearly all of Europe dependent on expensive American liquefied natural gas and also weapons too. Despite some of the, these gains that Russia has made so far, do you believe that Russia has blundered along the way here? And where do you see the war headed in the long term? Ah, so right after I've, I've told you that these kinds of predictions are dangerous ground, you invite me right into this minefield. Okay, so let's give this a try. Knowing what I know today, not knowing what the economic situation was, inclined to believe that the reason they didn't push for a military, quick military solution back in 2014, 2015, when the color revolution in the second color revolution in Kiev installed a rapidly anti-Russian Ukrainian regime, which we have to remember is the pretty much root cause of all of that's happening today. There's this whole black-pilled school of commentators, the Strelkov doomers, so-called after the guy who actually started the uprising in Slavyansk, that you know Russia should have gone in in 2015 and just swept everything like Crimea. The problem with that is that their economy at the time was not ready. They really were hit hard by the sanctions and the blockade because they had made themselves dependent on West for trade. And at that point, they started shifting their economy to be more resilient and to be self-sufficient. And that process is more or less complete, which is why the so-called sanctions from hell that got rolled out last year haven't hit them as hard as they've hit, for example, Europe. And honestly, let me let me just take a quick aside here. The society, the civilization, call it whatever you want, that is dependent on trade, uh, commerce, property rights, and rule of law, using sanctions, which are none of those things, which are completely antithetical to all of those things, as a geopolitical weapon is incredibly stupid. And how, whatever short-term benefits it might accrue to some people involved, the long-term impact of such a policy uh, to said civilization will be catastrophic and disastrous. It, it will be a net negative, mark my words, because, and I could go into details of, you know, how if you can't trust Western banks, then what are you going to do? You're going to start making alternatives to them. The belief of people in the West that the rest of the world has no choice but to integrate into their order is profoundly mistaken, and this conflict is demonstrating it. And people who come to realize this faster than others will stand to benefit. That's assuming there's no nuclear war. Now, on the other thing that you asked is, you know, how, how this is going. I mean, the broader, like the strategic Russian objective of demilitarizing Ukraine and, and remo physically removing the danger it poses to them is going fairly well. It doesn't sound like the news reports we're getting on a daily basis, but they've basically destroyed two entire Ukrainian armies. This is the third incarnation right now that's being assembled, you know, scraped together of, you know, remaining surplus NATO equipment, because the first one was the, the army that they started with, the Ukrainian army, and it was pretty much obliterated by the end of May. The second army is what ended up like all of this uh, Soviet generational weapons that were left over in Eastern Europe after the Warsaw Pact disintegrated, that NATO members like Poland and Slovakia and you know so on, they shipped over to rearm the Ukrainians and, and sort of create a second army. Now they're on their third. And that third one is basically getting mauled in Bahmut. And, and the rest are 
training on leopard tanks and they need like 600 of them and they've got maybe 60 tops. So it's one of those people who, who really look at tactical and operational and strategic things see the big picture here, which is that now what, what we don't know is you know, you've got all these fanciful pronouncements in, in at CNN, BBC, New York Times that, you know, Russians have lost five times more people, except that we have photos and video of Ukrainian cemeteries and we don't have the corresponding photos and video from Russia. So it's just one of those, they're counting on people not having access to any sort of Russian media because they're banned in the West, whereas the Russians actually allow, for better or for worse, they show Western media reports to their own population and then basically say, look at this nonsense. And I think from that standpoint, their strategy seems to be working better. Whereas here in the West, it's, you know, well, listen to see, who are you going to believe your lying eyes are CNN? And then when things don't happen the way CNN tells us, we come up with another cope and we just move on to the next subject. And it, it works until it doesn't anymore. And then then what? And nobody seems to have asked themselves that. But I think overall, one of the biggest things that we're seeing that Washington is currently in the process of galactically screwing up is a sort of a growing military alliance between Russia and China. Oh, yes. Biggest geopolitical blunder of the past century, in my opinion. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the modern American, globalist American empire as an extension of the British empire, because it's running the same script on a different operating system. The whole point of British geopolitics and continental politics before that was to never let any sort of continental alliance, so basically always divide and rule Europe. And the Americans took that to the logical next step and say always divide and rule Asia so that you know you have, when Nixon and Kissinger did the whole breakthrough with the Chinese and split them off the Soviet Union, that was a major Cold War victory for them. And that persisted even after Nixon was was overthrown and the US ended up going in a different direction. But that whole notion of never let Russia and Germany get together in Europe, uh, or never let Russia and China get together in Asia. Okay, well, you know, on one level, the Americans have decided, pretty decisively broken up any sort of relations between Russia and Germany. And the bombing of Nord Stream was uh, was as loud of an exclamation mark on that as one can get. But in this particular bargain, they got a Germany that whose industry is basically in ruins and that has nothing to offer. Like Europe has nothing to offer this partnership. What do they have? They're a market. They're consumers, but they don't make anything. They're just as financialized as as the US. It's, you know, for, for this type of empire vassal relationship to function, you need productive servants, not useless eaters, so to speak. And that's a particular blunder on that side. But with China, I mean, my God, okay, fine. You know, if you have to proclaim that your entire strategy of if we give them capitalism, they will turn into a democracy, first of all, admitting that and basically implying to the Chinese that you've lied to them for 30 plus years is a horrific thing to do, even if it's true, especially if it's true, because all of a sudden you've lost face and you've insulted them and that's a cultural thing. But it's just like Merkel and Hollande telling publicly that they, they lied in Minsk to buy Ukraine time to arm itself. I mean, this is not helping their cause. This is helping Russia's cause because now Russia can go out to the rest of the world and say, well, these people don't negotiate in good faith, which, let's face it, pretty much everybody in the rest of the world knows already. But, you know, they're boasting about being oath breakers. Who does that? And again, to circle back to China, sorry if I'm a little discombobulated, I'm going off in every which direction here, but to basically announce to the entire world that you were trying to export capitalism to China in hopes that their political system will follow, which is something that critics of capitalism and then, you know, opening trade relations with the West have been saying for years, and now you've just proven them right. It's an incredibly stupid move because Again, it, it antagonizes the people you were supposed to convert, and the conversion has failed, and you know, next stage is holy war, right? Next stage is, is conflict. But here's the U.S. dependent on China for most of its industrial needs, and you've got all these 
galaxy brains in financial institutions going, well, you know, the Chinese can't afford to sever relations. Well, I'm sorry, but can you make this, this stuff that you need at home? Because the Russians can. And the Chinese make stuff that they need at home. And if they can't get it from the West, they can get it from Russia. And they get the raw materials from, from Africa and elsewhere. But where are you going to get this stuff? Okay, well, they only make plastic crap. Fine. But you've got a, a nation of 330 million people, of which 90% is, is so impoverished and so much in debt that they need the cheap plastic crap. And you don't have any industry at home. And it's going to take 30 years to build any. And is anybody building any? No, because the trains are jumping tracks and the planes are just about crashing and falling out of the sky. And, you know, nothing's functioning at home because we've forgotten how to maintain things. We've forgotten how things work in our boundless arrogance and stupidity as a sort of an end of history society in which you push button, receive bacon, and, you know, these magical devices just magically function. And this is, you know, we laugh at the cargo cultists of Papua New Guinea from World War II who would see, you know, American planes drop boxes of goodies to the soldier station there so they would build airports out of reeds and uh, bamboo and, and try to, you know, imitate the, you know, cargo gods. We laugh at them, but that's what we're doing now. We're, we're engaging in a cargo cultist approach to the economy and antagonizing the rest of the world. And it if I were sitting in the Kremlin looking at this, I would be going, all right, you know, we got maybe three or four years before these guys completely collapse. Yep. We're going to see some interesting things go down with regards to China, which recently uh, put forward a 12-point peace plan outlining several points that stuck out to me, such as NATO expansion, halting military aid to Ukraine, stopping sanctions and protecting territorial integrity, among other bullet points. The U.S. obviously discarded this proposal off-rip. Ukraine, curiously, was somewhat lukewarm to this peace plan. Russia was neutral but willing to talk about it. Do you know much about this peace plan, and do you believe it's actually viable in terms of being implemented at this point? I do know its contents. I am familiar with the reactions to it. And I think the reactions to it are far more important. What happened was they put together this 12-point roadmap, and it was immediately rejected in the West. They didn't even quote it. They just said, you know, China has no grounds to say anything because they haven't, basically, they haven't sided with us and condemned Russia. So only our perspective is valid. That was the Western position. That was the White House and NATO. The Ukraine, they were saying that only their 10-point peace plan, which amounts to a complete and unconditional Russian surrender, is what they're willing to negotiate starting from. So they didn't quite reject the Chinese plan so much as basically insist on their proposal, which is laughable. And Moscow responded by saying, oh, well, with all due respect to our Chinese neighbors, these are our conditions for sitting down. And they actually listed their demands, which is something that I don't think they've done previously. And parallel to all this, the Chinese foreign ministry released this I, treatise, pamphlet, screed. I'm not really sure how to, how to title it, but it was called the, Amer the Perils of American Hegemony. And it was essentially... China watchers, people who know China, not like crazy people who've been predicting the collapse of China for the past 20 years, any moment now, but actual people who understand China have basically said that this is very unusual and it amounts to, back in the imperial days, the, the emperor would essentially create a document in which um, he would list the failings of whichever enemy he was about to declare war on. And basically, it's, it's, it's like one of those lists of um, abuses and usurpations that Jefferson listed in the Declaration of Independence. China's essentially listing a litany of American foreign policy sins. And one has to wonder why at this particular moment, and again, I'm not in sufficiently good of a China watcher to 
be confident in this prediction, but the people who have so far demonstrated that they know what they're talking about are essentially convinced that this is uh, Xi Jinping's sort of making his case to the world that China's cause is just and America's cause is not. And now how China is going to proceed to deal with this, I don't necessarily think it's going to be open warfare, but I think it's going to be a series of measures that are going to decouple, to remove any sort of financial leverage that the West has with Beijing while preserving the Chinese trade advantage. And to the point where if and when the U.S. decides to sanction China the way they've sanctioned Russia, that will actually not hit them as hard as it hits us. And I think they're positioning in that direction. Now, there have been reports all across the Western bobblehead media with regards to China potentially providing military aid to Russia. Is there much credence to those assertions? And if they are true, what kind of impact do you believe that aid would have on the conflict in Ukraine? Well, first of all, even that perfumed admiral in the White House, that's the National Security Council spokesman, has has admitted that they don't actually have any evidence of anything. This is just one of those bits of, I'm going to accuse you of something, so you have to spend the next several weeks defending yourself and proving that you're not what I've accused you of, and thereby end up doing my bidding tactics that is so commonly seen on the domestic American political scene. Essentially, Washington has just called China racist. And they're trying, to, they're, what they're expecting Beijing to do is the, the typical scripted response is, no, we're not, and here's how. But of course, the Chinese have responded quite differently. They've basically said, who is Washington to accuse us of anything? They've literally sent over $100 billion worth of weapons to Ukraine themselves. In other words, they're not even dignifying the accusation with a response. They're saying that the West has no grounds to, you know, people, glass houses, stones, etc. Now, people familiar with the Russian military and the Chinese military are saying that the Chinese actually, uh, most of their artillery is on a Western, on a NATO caliber standard. So uh, them supplying Russians, you know, 152 millimeter rockets or whatever is not going to happen because they don't have any. I think that the partnership between Moscow and Beijing, they, and they do have a partnership. They have a strategic treaty. They have a trade treaty. They're trading in energy and, and all these other natural resources. Russia has a sufficient military industrial base for its own military needs from everything that I've been able to see. They, what stuff they need is things like they need more so than they've sufficiently ramped up to production is stuff like drones and you know suicide drones, that sort of thing. Things that have proven themselves incredibly effective on the modern battlefield that are not your standard artillery tanks, etc. Tactical things, uh, which, you know, okay, China might be able to provide those, but nobody's accusing China of, of sending drones. So I think, again, this whole interplay with, oh, China's about to supply uh, Russia with weapons. Well, first of all, there's nothing that legally bars them from doing that. Secondly, they most likely won't because they don't have the right kind of weapons. And third, the kind of weapons that they do have and might send is not the kind of weapons the U.S. is bringing up. And that all leads to me to believe that this type of accusation was intended to put the Chinese on the back foot, force them to you know, self-justify and go out of their way to prove that this is not the case, and uh, essentially you know, control and channel their behavior and it hasn't succeeded in that purpose because, again, the Chinese are not, for lack of a better word, American Republicans. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of projection just going on there. And this might be an excuse. I just think that the Defense Department, which is actually much more focused on containing China, is using to justify a shift from Russia containment towards China containment, to be honest, because actually one of the reasons why I originally didn't believe that Russia was going to invade in Ukraine was that I was of the view that the U.S. was going to focus more attention on China. And 
curiously, people tend to forget this. There was an Atlantic Council paper. I think it's, it was like the longer telegram or whatever it, that was published in 2021. That was somewhat calling for a, I want to say like full rapprochement between Russia and the U.S., but a slight recalibration of relations to so that the U.S. could focus more of its energy on confronting China. But now it looks like they're just doing dual containment full speed ahead. Well, I think they've basically put everything on red or you know whatever and, and are betting the house on it because again from like the Jewish political standpoint you know the ghosts of all the great statesmen who've successfully run empires are probably shrieking somewhere in hell right now watching this because it's like don't do this for years and and this is I'm not a sinologist my expertise on Russia is greater than most Americans just because well variety of reasons from history to um being culturally adjacent originally, but I know very little about China compared to actual Sinologists that I follow. And yet I see, it seems like I know more than your average idiot pundit who just absorbed the talking points of, oh, China wants to be a world empire. Well, have, do you have any evidence whatsoever for that claim? And most often people would say no, because, well, they, they, they I mean, of course they do. Well, how do you know? And again, most people just go, well, that's what we would do. That's what we have done. Well, they're not you. They don't think the same way. I thought that was the whole point of this whole diversity business to, yes, to get, exactly. you know, get people who think differently based on how they look. But no, I guess the diversity business is to get people who look different but think the same. But again, like the Chinese government has this completely different notion of uh, they don't want to rule the world. They've seen what happened to people and countries that aspire to do that. They've studied the Spanish Empire and what happened to Spain after it got rich off of the Latin, it looted Latin, uh, South America, Latin America, for lack of a better word. They've seen what happened to the British. They're seeing what's happening to the US. They've seen what happened to the Soviet Union, and the Russians have learned that lesson very well. They have no interest in being an empire. They want to protect their trade routes. Obviously, everybody does. But it's much better and easier and stable and cheaper to do this within some sort of international legal order than to try to rule the world by force and you know make up law as you go along, which is what the U.S. ended up doing starting in the 1990s. Oh, yeah. In many respects... We are seeing a reversion to the more classical 19th century geopolitics of strict spheres of influence, something that the universalist crowd in Washington, D.C. cannot wrap their heads around. But again, as I've said before, these people are intellectual peasants, so we can't expect much from them. Now, for predictions, if... China does provide maybe like financial aid or a little bit of military aid. Do you believe that this will result in the full-blown decoupling of America's economic interactions with China and the acceleration of the second front of Cold War 2.0 against it? Difficult to say. I think my gut feeling is that these spurious accusations were intended to compel China to act a certain way. And they're backfiring right now. And if this particular thing continues on this tack, I wouldn't be surprised if the Chinese, if the White House imposes some sanctions against some Chinese companies or people as a way to sort of continue projecting its, you know, an image of strength. And then the Chinese will retaliate in some way, shape or form. And that might spiral. But I think at this point, the government in Beijing is absolutely convinced that the Americans are not a friend or even a potential partner. They're not quite an enemy, but they're in that gray zone that the Pentagon loves to term adversary. So I think they're going to be acting accordingly. But I don't think there's going to be like some sort of landing on Taiwan or anything like that, because that's, again, based on what I've observed and what smarter people than me have said, 
that's not how the Chinese think or act, because attacking Taiwan is precisely what the U.S. would want them to do. And they have no need to attack Taiwan. Taiwan's income basically comes from exports of computer chips primarily. So if they can find a way to annul that or, you know, unofficially blockade the island, they will accomplish their political goals regarding the island much better than sending troops there. And let's not forget, I mean, these are, you know, this is a culture that's produced the art of war 3,000 years ago. Um, They've figured out all of the principles of strategy, tactics, and operations while the ancestors of Europeans were were still sort of grubbing for roots in, in the woods. So the current American government trying to match wits with the Chinese is just a laughable concept on its, I mean, I'm sorry, but trying to imagine a collection of Bidens and Fettermans matching their wits with any sort of Chinese government whatsoever, it would be hilarious if it weren't tragic. Oh, yeah. I also would call attention to the fact that the Chinese have probably already studied Western-style like imperial models, and they, especially this universalist permutation that has taken root over the past century, and they've realized like the many pitfalls of that. Also, let's realize this too. Asia is still super, super nationalistic. And there are a lot of countries in Asia that are very competent nation states that want no business dealing with Chinese like ultra hegemony. And I I believe the Chinese actually recognize that, which is why they tend to be more pragmatic with focusing more on economic integration and other measures as opposed to doing like traditional Indo-Aryan style conquests that characterize a lot of the West's development over the past like, millennium. Right. Well, I mean, just to, just to put it in perspective, insofar as they can be said to, to be imperialist, it's a trade empire. They're interested in commerce. They literally go to places in Africa and say, we don't care what your internal politics are. We just want the bills paid on time. We will build a road for you. You give us money for it, preferably, you know, gold, hard currency, mineral reserves, etc. But we will trade with you. And we don't really care who's your prime minister or, you know, what sort of religion you practice or whether you love homosexuals or hate homosexuals or we don't even care if you conduct human sacrifices. I'm just making this last bit up. But they literally don't go changing people's governments. All they're interested in is commerce. And then you have, you know, especially the United States, which is aggressively promoting its ideology as opposed to commerce abroad. You even have people like the French who are now being kicked out of Africa by their former Francophone colonies because they're like, look, you're not helping us. You're essentially keeping us in bondage. We'd much rather make a deal with Wagner for security and with China for commerce than to deal with you one more day. And the French are coping and seething, but there's nothing they can do because, you know, what are they going to do? Try to reinvade with what army? Nobody takes the British seriously anymore. Unfortunately, the problem with the West is it's become the very thing that it said it opposed during the Cold War. This whole Cold War rhetoric of, oh, you know, we we believe in freedom and democracy and the evil Soviets want to enslave the world and and impose their ideology on everybody. Well, okay, what's going on with that right now? You can't go into any country in the world, name me one country in the world in which American economic development or even humanitarian aid has gone without all, you know, gender-inclusive programs or the rainbow flag. Again, whatever your feelings about these groups are not, what does that have to do with whether people in Eritrea have enough to eat? Nothing. And yet, you know, here's the American ambassador saying, oh, you you must, human rights, uh, you know, what does that have to do with any of it? And the Chinese don't do that, which is why they're so successful in establishing trade relations with these countries. And then you have all of these Western academics, like the aforementioned idiotic professor, who are like, oh, well, they're just, you know, hiding their imperialism behind commerce. No, no, idiot, that's what you're doing. You're just projecting. Yeah. One reason I believe that countries such as like Saudi Arabia and a lot of the broader Arab world, which have traditionally been more U.S. aligned, the past 50 years 
are going to drift more into the Chinese and Russian orbit is because of how accelerationist the U.S.'s wokeism has grown among the foreign policy elites in the U.S. And that's to me, is going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back that makes these countries start pursuing more multi-vector foreign policies or even consummating full-blown alliances with China or whatever Eurasian actor becomes relevant in that sphere. Well, arguably, it's already happening. I mean, uh, over the past year, like when, if you remember when OPEC Plus uh, was being pressured or begged rather by Washington not to increase the production so it would drop the price of oil, they said, no, no, we're, we won't do that. We're, we're actually going to reduce it even further. And when this, when I say English journalist asked the Saudi oil minister at the big press conference, you know, why are you doing this? He said, well, first of all, I'm not giving you a question because you lied about us. And secondly, show me where the hostile act is. You know, if you can show me what I'm doing wrong, then I can address it. In fact, obviously, this went over the heads of most of the prostitutes present, but the Saudi minister literally called them crooks and liars to their faces. And I'm trying to imagine a competent State Department in which Somebody would have said, look, guys, you know, the Saudis are about to throw out the window 70 years of relying on us as their security guarantor. We should do something about this. And instead, you know, no, first of all, nobody's noticing. Secondly, their idea of doing something about it is to yell about human rights of women and the rainbow community. And it's just achieving a completely counterproductive effect. The fact that one of the pillars of American hegemony in the world, which is a petrodollar, has effectively quietly ended, and that you have countries already transacting internationally in some other currency is underappreciated. And and it should be far more alarming than it, it is in Western political circles. But that's because Again, most people are idiots. Indeed. And that's just a nutshell of how bad the clown world state we live in actually is because we have the intellectual yet idiot crowd running all of our affairs much to middle America's detriment, which is a good segue into the domestic affairs of like the US, which you do comment on an underrated facet of your work because i've seen you make some hot takes on twitter and telegram about the effectiveness of the american right or better yet the lack thereof and what ways do you see the american right functioning as an ineffective form of opposition to the globalist american empire as the cartoon opposition, they're incredibly effective. Uh, you know, as, as the scripted designated loser, they're doing exactly what the screenwriters want from, you know, if, if to, so to speak. The biggest problem that I, that I can see with conservatives is that there's nothing to conserve. They don't know what they're fighting for. They don't know how to fight for it. When somebody tries, they end up turning all of their metaphorical guns inwards and essentially, you know, tone policing their own is more important. You know, what will the New York Times think? Well, who cares what the New York Times thinks? They're the enemy. They hate you. <laughs> you know, maybe this is me being born elsewhere and, you know, see, being at the receiving end of the hatred from the New York Times. But there's a handful of members of Congress that I metaphorically love to pieces. And they have these fantastic takes about freedom and, legality and all this other stuff. And then they say, but, but my constitution, I'm like, my dude, do you seriously think the constitution is actually still in effect? I mean, has it actually stopped the people who've been trying to remake this country in their own image? Okay. I'm all in favor of trying to restore it, but you have to, again, let's circle back to what Sun Tzu wrote, you know, 3000 years ago. If you know the enemy, but you don't know yourself, you're probably going to lose. If you don't know the enemy and you don't know yourself, you're guaranteed to lose. And if you know the enemy and you know yourself, you're pretty much guaranteed to win. And this is a, obviously a very loose translation, but that's the gist of his writing. And what we're dealing, I think, with 
the internally, a lot of Americans that I've spoken with over the past several years, very frustrated people who don't understand what's happening to their country, who don't understand where it's going. How can these things be possible? How can people who are so manifestly incompetent keep winning elections or getting away with this? Surely if we tell the truth, the media, no, 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 no. The media's job, if they've ever done it, and I'm starting to question that, if they were envisioned as this watchdog that is supposed to expose malfeasance and therefore shame politicians into being better. Well, first of all, they've stopped doing that, arguably a long time ago. But secondly, we have uh, politicians running things who are utterly shameless. And this is not a single party issue. I mean, one of the biggest assets uh, that Donald Trump brought to the table in 2016 was that he was immune to the media attempts to shame him like they've done every single other Republican candidate before him. He shrugged it off and barreled on because he had his convictions and he stood by them. Unfortunately, that all melted away once he took office and basically hired everybody from Conservative Inc. to run things. And we've all seen how that turned out. But that sort of approach of, I don't care what the New York Times has to say because they're lying and I'm going to do what I think is right, it's missing because people seem to have learned nothing over the 40 years of Trump's presidency and are determined to repeat every single mistake of the past. You know, they, they want the Paul Ryan Republican Party back. They want the Mitt Romney Party back. You know, they, they want to... I'm sorry, but if a pundit has praised uh, Liz Cheney or, you know, commended Mitt Romney and Adam Kinzinger for, for courage and uh, integrity, they're useless. Don't pay no attention to what they have to say. They're idiots whose opinions should not be taken seriously. Because, because they are. And you, you still have this whole gang of grifters essentially telling people stories that they think they want to hear and not really proposing any sort of solutions. You, you know, you've got aggrieved people, you know, people with grievances against Trump because he didn't do things they wanted him to do, or, you know, they were hoping that they would be appointed to certain offices and they weren't. Best illustration of what I'm trying to, to say is midterms happened in November 2022. And within a week, instead of saying, wait a minute, some of these things are fishy, because again, they were scared into rejecting the very thought of this by the propaganda campaign about 2020. The whole, I'm going to call you racist, so you're going to waste all of your energy proving you're not. They essentially jumped on this absolute bait proffered by the corporate media serving the establishment. Oh, well, you know, this is why Trump is crap and DeSantis should be the next candidate. And essentially, they're, what they're doing is let them fight. They're pitting Trump versus DeSantis. DeSantis is an incredibly effective governor of Florida. But governing Florida and running the United States are two completely different things. And I don't necessarily see why DeSantis would aspire to be a checkmated president, because let's, let's face it, unless, unless a Republican is somehow able to dismantle the administrative state apparatus that tripped Trump every step of the way, they have no hope of governing. I think that's pretty obvious. I don't think I'm saying anything new by stating that obvious truth. So why would DeSantis want to run for president and assuming he's allowed to win, spend the next four years being the designated enemy of the media, every single government employee getting impeached four times by the, the Democrat-dominated House and Senate? Why would he do that to himself or his party? I don't think Trump running again is a solution either, to be perfectly honest, because I don't see any signs that he's learned anything from his first go around. But this is not about individuals. This is about knowing what needs to be done in order not just to get power, but what to do with it when you get it. And like that famous quote, it's like a dog chasing cars. They don't know what to do with it when they catch them. You still have people in the Republican Party going, yeah, and when we take power, we're going to make government smaller. Okay, my dudes, yeah, no, Ronald Reagan, the whole let's bring back Reaganism thing is 
about as delusional as rerunning the Cold War script or Let's face it, rerunning the Serbia 1990s script on Russia in, in the 2020s, it's about as insane. And you literally can't go back in time. And did we forget that Reaganism ultimately didn't work? That produced George Bush and the war in Iraq and Bill Clinton? Like, why are we even doing this? Nobody's asking these questions because nobody wants to think about any sort of consequences, second order consequences. I'm just baffled by the sheer absence of thought in in this entire yeah it's amazing to me how reagan is still praised because when you look at his record i actually don't think he's as bad as like some like libtards would think he is but what i think he's particularly bad about is that his mass amnesty created a massive demographic shift in the freaking southwest that destroyed california for republicans because there's like no way to the changing demographics there that, that that state's ever going to go to the Republicans. And now a lot of states like Arizona and whatnot are also becoming much more competitive for Democrats. And it's soon to be Texas as well, because Republicans have rest on their laurels now. But once most of like the children and grandchildren of migrants become of voting age and are fully indoctrinated, once they invariably go through the public school and even the private school woke pipeline, these people are going to be useful automatons voting for the Democrat Party. So, yeah, talk about an own goal of epic proportions. And I say this as somebody who doesn't even think that Reagan is like that bad. But that then again, I just don't think it's sufficient at this point to right the wrongs of the past. Because if anything, we need to go back to the Coolidge and Harding administration, which actually signed immigration restriction legislation and pursued a relatively restrained foreign policy, something that's not really talked about in Republican circles because all these hacks just think about Reagan being the alpha and the omega of good governance, which is absolute nonsense. If anything, we need to be talking about Calvin Coolidge and Warren Harding, but alas, we don't live in that type of political environment. And one note, um, I will say this about DeSantis. I'm more skeptical, not so much about DeSantis, but the type of people that are surrounding his campaign, man. These people are neocon retreads or neocon adjacent types that I want nothing to do with. And they, they'll absolutely co-opt his campaign. I'd rather him be governor for life in Florida and turn that place into like a red safe space. But that's just me. This leads into one final point I want to discuss about the emergence of the populist right. Because it is pretty relevant when we're talking about DeSantis and Trump, because there is like some hope, albeit slight, that things will change on the political right, especially on foreign policy. However, things haven't been so smooth so far, as you mentioned, Naboja, with how the GOP in the US, for example, is still held by and large by the neocon and other super hawk elements. In your view, how optimistic are you about potential restrainers taking over the GOP and changing its foreign policy outlook in the long term? Well, it doesn't look very promising right now because you've essentially, from the standpoint of foreign policy, you essentially have the uniparty in charge. You have the, the current ruling party saying Ukraine is the most important thing. You know, those screw those people in Ohio. They voted for Trump. They've got what they deserve. And they eventually managed to get somewhat shamed into helping them, which I was actually surprised by because I thought them completely shameless. But again, like seeing Biden and all of his, you know, you've got Yellen going to Kiev. You've got Merrick Garland going to Kiev for some reason. Essentially, they're making pilgrimages to the the new capital of the imperial faith, and yet, you know, screw people in Ohio or in Texas or in California even. Just who cares? You're just Americans. You're not Ukrainians. Why would I bother serving you is the kind of attitude emanating from Washington. Yeah, And then, you know, Mitch McConnell goes on TV and says, the most important thing right now is Ukraine. Well, I'm sorry, but you're an idiot. You're not serving your own people. You're not serving the interests of your own party. You're not serving the interests of your own country. And as long as you're in charge of the party, your party's going to keep losing. That's just a fact. In order for the GOP to do anything about, you know, 
I'm taking a step back from, I keep saying on Telegram, I'm not going to comment on US domestic politics because I keep saying there isn't any because it's just show. It's, it's just a circus and you won't get anywhere by analyzing the interplay of different clowns. But if populists, whether on the left or on the right, want to take their country back from these insane imperialists that are gambling with the survival of the human race, not just the future of of American children, but like of the entire world, by trying to expand or even preserve the globalist American empire. I've been saying this for years, and I'll repeat it now because it's more, more true than ever. If there is to be an American republic, there can't be an American empire. They're mortal enemies of each other. The empire is a parasite that's sucking the republic dry, and if it's not checked and ended, it will kill it. The republic will perish, whether in nuclear fire, which I hope is not the case, or it will fragment into some kind of civil war because all empires eventually fail. I don't really want to see people that I know, people that are my friends, people that are my relatives suffer because of this. It would be a horrible thing. So. The ideal solution would obviously be to restore the Republic somehow. But the Republican Party doesn't seem to be aware, first of all, of the problem. Secondly, the scope of the problem. Thirdly, the ways to remedy the problem. It's essentially that person from Sun Tzu's maxim that does not know himself and doesn't quite fully understand the enemy either. And so it's not a surprise that they keep losing or their victories end up being tactical. Now, there is a handful of people who seem to have more or less figured out effective methods of fighting, and they go and do these things. And what do you see? You see the great and deep thinkers of the right attack them. Oh, well, don't bother reforming education. That will never work. Well, of course, it's not going to work because you're not trying it. Just letting something B isn't going to fix the problem. Uh, I mean, okay, personally, I think that there's a massive problem with education, for example. It's being used for indoctrination as opposed to a lot of these kids who come out of the schools don't know how to count or how to read, but they know 73 sets of pronouns. And, you know, these people don't know how to fly planes or drive trucks or drive trains or maintain trains or anything that enables an industrial society to function, which goes back to a rant I had earlier. But it's incredibly self-destructive in the long run, but you know, it's not a problem that fixes itself. I remember during the pandemic when you had school closures at the behest of various Democrats and Fauci, and I was watching all of these Republicans saying, reopen the schools. And I'm holding my head here going, you idiots, if you were thinking in terms of power, and effective governance and advancing your ideology, you would be pushing for homeschooling or charter schools or something because the education is, not to put too fine of a point, from the standpoint of Republicans, the education is an enemy nexus. And yet, no, they're like, no, 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 we want to to reopen our schools. Great. So you can have woke education. You've played yourself. Why why are you, can't you see farther than you? No, because these people are like, well, we need to reopen the schools so our kids don't hang out at home so, you know, we can get work done. Okay, so you've literally accepted to outsource your children to the state and then you're complaining that the state is using your children to its own ends. What are you, an idiot? Yes, obviously. Because again, like trying to reason with people during this was just like pulling teeth And, you know, I'm not a party activist. I'm just an outside observer. And it was blatantly obvious to me. And I think there's maybe five people that I know in the public sphere who may have actually drawn similar conclusions. And, you know, you have people who try to create their own institutions and immediately come under fire. Oh, what are you doing? Okay, fine. We'll fight to take over the other institutions. Oh, we can't do that. What do you want to do? You want to just sit back and lose losingly because you're in love with loserdom? It seems like the highest aspiration among a Republican Party operative, pundit, activist, campaign manager, consultant is to essentially comfortably lose for the rest of their life. And I can't believe people are stupid enough to believe that this kind of grift can go on forever. Yep, that is how the cookie crumbles 
it, the GOP, man, because this is as useless of an opposition as it gets, but it's absolutely useful for the ruling class, which always needs a false opposition. All right, Naboja, I had a fantastic time chatting with you. So before we depart, could you tell my listeners where they can keep up with your latest work? Sure. So you can find me on Twitter at Neboja Malich, N-E-B-O-J-S-A-M-A-L-I-C, altogether. And you can find me on Telegram as The Nebulator. Those are basically the easiest places to find me. My my Twitter also has a link to uh, some very infrequent op-eds that I publish that are uh, a lot of times related to Balkans history and how it pertains to current events. But Telegram is is where I put up my more mid-form analysis of international stuff and very occasionally when I get dragged into it, comment on U.S. policy. Great stuff. And to my audience, thank you again for listening to El Nino Speaks. And with that, El Nino has spoken.